You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Keith, good to get you back. It's been a while since you've been here. I've, I've been on set Hedgeye, but you've not been on Real Vision for a while. So always good to pick your brains. I want to do something a bit different today. Uh, we'll come on to markets and your views in a bit. But you spend a lot of time talking to people about investment processes and what you guys do at Hedgeye. I'd love for you to, from top down to getting to a more granular level in terms of what it gets to positions and stuff, how you go through that process. I think it will just help people just to understand what it is. Yeah, I, I think, and I think that this is um, what at least I feel differentiates you know, what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to educate every single day. I really don't have any predisposed thought on where economic gravity should go uh, or what country or asset allocation I should be long or short on the equity or the fixed income side or what asset class from commodities to anything really. I, I, you know, I can even talk about like investing as in wine as an asset class, which I think kind of surprises some people. Uh, but the reality is that if there's a time series and there's a long-standing time series at that, and I can backtest whatever that asset class is, then I'm going to have a view on it based on incoming data. So what we do at a, at a very basic level is that we uh, measure and map the rates of change of growth and inflation globally. So we do that for about 50 countries. We keep that live. We have about 175 ETFs that we're also measuring and mapping in what we call signal terms. So you have two, a two-track process there. You have uh, the measuring and mapping of the economic data, and you have the measuring and mapping of the, the, the signal, if I just call it that. The signal generally is front-running the economic quad or the economic data. Uh, the quad, of course, is a two-by-two two model, so it's growth and inflation, and there's four different permutations in rate of change space that those can be, you know, those can be quad one, two, three, and four, with quad four being the dangerous one where both growth and inflation slow at the same time. That's very damning for equities, for example, in those, in those uh, countries. And it's very good for the, or generally good for the sovereign bond in that country. So there are certain asset allocations you make, which we call conditionally based on the economic data. And every single day I get new data. So like a good Bayesian boy or what we call Bayesian inference process, which really isn't, shouldn't be um, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. It's really like bean counting. Uh, every day I reserve the unalienable right until somebody in this country, uh, socialist or not, takes it away where uh, I can change my mind. So we have that. And what really changes my mind is back on the other track, which is the signal. And the signal is a price, volume, volatility signal, which really weighs on the relationship of those three factors. A lot of people look at the surface area of signal or um, what I affectionately call moving monkeys. You know, if you're just looking at the moving average of a price, you're looking at a one-factor model on the surface area of, say, the water. Now, if you're looking, you know, at the current and the rocks and and take it a little, you know, take it a little deeper into what's actually happening to that body of water, to use the metaphor of price, volume, and volatility, then you start to get a little closer to where I'm at. And what, what where I really find the signal uh, speaks to a phase transition back to the quad, a phase transition in. In, in natural space or in thermodynamics, everyone would know what that means. We go from one thing to the other thing. Um, so that's the signal. What really signals is the ball of ball or what I call, you know, the volatility of volatility. When that starts to change, asset classes start to change. And that's really just front running what we call a quad. So those are, those are the two big parts. 
Are you using implied vols when you're looking at the vol of vol, or are you looking at realized volatility and over what time period? Well, both. I look at realized across durations, and that's another important thing about the signal. I think a lot of people, again, everyone does it differently, but I do it consistently, uh, and I've done it my own way for, for a long, long time. Uh, so when I look at it, I look at it across durations. Okay, I'm looking multi-factor, so multiple things in macro, everything in macro, all at the same time. Uh, but I'm looking at across durations. So I call them trades, trends, and tails, and I'm looking at realized. So if I look at the trade duration, for example, which is three weeks or less, I could have one day, 10 day, you know, two weeks, all the way up to three weeks in that model. And I'm looking at realized vol relative to implied vol. So what, whether or not implied vol is trading towards a, a discount versus what's been realized in the last 30 days, for example, or what's, uh, you know, what's trading at a premium. And, and, and that's really important, Raul, because you can see that's where the market is betting on future volatility or not. And there's a lot in that information when paired with a, a, a probability weighting of the next economic quad or the economic reality. I know that's a lot, not, not, not to you, but th there's a lot to that. And what we're really trying to do is simplify the complex there, uh, as opposed to me just saying, hey, you know, what does this bloke over at uh, Prime Broker JB or C think about market positioning? You know, those days are over, you know, like getting those types of kind of um, tidbits or talking points. Uh, now we can measure and map all of it, all of it. You know, you couldn't do this before, uh, whether it's on the economic data or on the signaling of it all, um, until we had modern computing power. And I think that that's one of the big reasons why uh, we've become more accurate really since 2016 is that I have more information faster and I can see where the crowd is tilting the wrong way at precisely the wrong time uh, more clearly. And that's, that's an important point about looking at realized versus implied in particular. So let's talk a little bit about that. So when you've got realized trading below implied over whatever time period, let's say it's a trading signal we're looking at. So, you know, I don't know what time period we're looking at, but let's say whether it's two week or one month or seven day, whatever you're looking at. So what is the signal you're looking for? What gets you to sit up and go, huh, that's something interesting. And then we'll talk about how you use volume and the other stuff with it. But, but that signal of the vol of vol, what is the signals, the kind of signals you look for that make you think, huh, okay, something may be happening here? Well, if it's a very short-term tactical thing, and some people try to reduce me to just being a trader, which is fine. I take it as a compliment these days. Uh, but what I'm really trying to do is, is, is identify a particular point in time within the full investing cycle. The full investing cycle is the sign curve. You know, when economic growth hits the peak of the cycle on growth or inflation or vice versa, it's hitting the bottom. That makes me out there in the longest term. But then I zoom in to the very immediate term. Yep. And uh, one good example on implied vol, uh, the way to use it, really, is there's a two-factor model there as well. When a market is trading at the low end of its risk range, for example, what typically happens is you get a big implied volatility premium or a big spike in implied people are buying protection after something goes to the low end of the range. That's a pretty good spot if your quad setup says to buy that thing, to buy more of it in size, okay? Yep. Um, conversely, if something... Uh, develops uh, you know, something that's A, at the top end of its risk range. So I publish these daily. It's at the top end of its risk range and the implied volatility discount digs deeper. That's a great example of complacency and or capitulation. In other words, the bulls are fat and happy. They're very happy because the price is up at the top end of the range and bears have covered their shorts and they've capitulated. So that would be a good spot to take off some of the position or short something of that position. And so talk to me about risk ranges, because I see you, you, you put this out a lot on Twitter, your risk ranges. How do you define risk ranges? Is it kind of some sort of volatility style structure? How do you look at risk ranges? 
Yeah, so that's built within the same prism and all that. You can have a risk range on any duration, but the daily risk range is the one that really matters because that's the, you know, think of it uh, like the strike zone. Now, some people, some people who maybe never made it to the major leagues uh, think that the strike zone is always the same. Well, it's not because there's a person called the umpire behind you who has an opinion on that. So until they fully automate it, the strike zone can move. Or as Darius Dale, one of my, my partners here says, you know, like football, you know, you can draw something up in the, in the training room, but uh, the trash cans actually move in real life. So, so that's the risk range is directly, uh, it's, it's moving proportionally to volatility changing. And what people have a really hard time um, observing is just that very basic point. You know, if volatility rises, on average, what happens is that your risk range widens. So your standard deviation of outcomes starts to you know, become tougher to call. Uh, you got a drunk umpire, so, so think about it that way. Conversely, when you have a tightening risk range, what's happening is that the volatility on both an immediate term basis and on a trending intermediate term, three months or more basis, is, is, is falling and makes that asset or the asset class you know, one that the machine or asset allocators want to flow to. Because that's what you learn if you study economic history within the lens of market returns, is that flow, like on an intermediate to long-term basis, goes towards things that have falling, low regimes of volatility that are falling, and they loathe rising regimes of volatility, high and rising. Um, so that's, um, you, you got to kind of use it all together. And I think that that's where Sometimes people are following it in terms of how I say it. It's very clear in my own head. My, my challenge is actually to communicate it to other people. That's why I spend so much time on it. So the, so the risk range is essentially a volatility band. It's like, I don't know what, one standard deviation band over that time period or something that gives you the probability that there's a short-term trend exhaustion. Or if you're using a bigger, a longer-term indicator, it may be a longer-term exhaustion. Is that is that kind of what the risk range is to you? So it kind of, as you said, within the, within the volatility range you're in, it's got to the top end of where it should be for that move. Yeah. And it's very much, um, it's a nonlinear uh, equation. So again, it, it embraces uncertainty. It embraces moves that, that move the move. If you're looking at treasury bond volatility, for example, the move index. Um, so again, it's not like, uh, it's never one standard deviation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What happens is that a move in vol of vol, in other words, some, like, so Benoit Mandelbrot taught this, which is you know, if you study volatility historically, you'll find that it is one, episodic and non-trending. So again, volatility moves are typically to be faded, in particular if you're in a bullish trend of a market. But what happened, what it really matters is when that episodic, thought to be non-trending cluster of volatility, which blows out your risk range, appears, well, whoa, that might be the leading indicator for a phase transition economically. And that's what I'm really looking for. Like when you really get into the screws of uh, the rescaled range uh, analysis in Benoit Mandelbrot's beautiful book. It's second to my Catholic Bible in terms of my bookshelf or rank order, and I definitely will have to put God ahead of that. But again, you know, Mandelbrot would say that I'm standing on the shoulders of gravity, and, and God would probably agree with that too. So when you look at, if you read his book very closely, I've read that book so many different times and retaught myself all, through every single mistake I've ever made. I really built it using, if you want a hint on how to build it, that's exactly how I built it. And again, what happens is that you get a cluster of volatility that becomes, just like anything in fractal math, becomes the new trend. Now, those are the big calls, Ralph. That means that we're going to a new economic quad. That means that it wasn't episodic and non-trending. It's something you should be acutely aware of in that particular moment of, of cycle time. We'll come into the quad stuff in a minute. So, okay, you've now got the vol signal. Let's stay at the trading moment first, and then we'll go into the big picture. So the trading moment, you've got the vol of vol shift. You then said there's 
couple of other factors come to play, volumes and something else. What? Uh, it's price, volume, and volatility. It's the interplay between the three. So that's that's the basic three-factor model. So you see the vol shift change. You're looking for the price change. And then what? You're looking for a push in volume? Or how, how do you put volume that? Yeah, so that's an important question. It's the relationship, much like um, you know, much like I was using the analogy of of a riverbed or, or the water and the rocks and the speed of the water underneath. So again, when price is going up, which you'll often find, and you can find it uniquely within each signal, when the price is going up and the volume is going up at the same time, that reflects there's a higher you know, higher volume of water, higher pace, higher conviction. More people believe in it. Um, you know, with no change in volatility. It's typically in a low volatility environment. When you get a, a move down in, in a bull market in price and the volume is decelerating and still the volatility has not changed, it's a buy the damn dip signal. If you get a down move in price on rising volume on a new change, a potential cluster of volatility that will be, could be the beginning of a new trend, that's the one to pay attention to on the risk management side. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So now we've got a rough idea of how you look at the trading signal. So how does how do you then bring that into a longer term signals? I guess you just do longer term variations of it, longer term volatility. But then how does that fit into the quads? And how do you get all of these different disparate price signals and say, actually, we've got a shift in our quads? So first, we need to talk a little bit about the quads and then this transition between one and the other and, um, and how the asset prices tell you that. Yeah. So when first, uh, and again, two feet on the floor, God willing, in the morning. And this is hard. I mean, you have to pay attention. This is why I love being, you can call me a trader, full cycle investor. I don't care. Uh, it takes a, a deliberate study. You have to pay very close attention, not to just that one. So you have to do that through everything that's big in the model that matters. So you have a three-factor model, price, volume, volatility. Let's say between 25 and 30 factors the machine considers as causal at any given time. Those things can be. Uh, things like copper, the 10-year bond yield, the 10-year bond yield versus the 10-year boon yield. And this is all Bayesian, so things shift around all the time. Yeah, always changing. But again, deliberately studying it, writing it down after uh, each model reloads for me in the morning. I get my signal. Then I say, what is the aggregate of that signal saying about the secret to the universe, which is the quads? The quads, again, is calculus. The, the quads is the rate of change of GDP growth real and the rate of change of inflation. Without a debate on specifically what government is lying to you about either of those in terms of how they're stated, it is explicitly focused on the rates of change of both of those things. Again, secret to the universe to, to, to my friend Stephen Strogratz, Professor Stephen Strogratz, who wrote a great book that teaches people that don't quite, you know, they're not mathematically inclined, but they're interested in things like gravity um, and that the earth isn't the center of the universe like some people think valuation is or a 50-day moving average. Um, you know, again, we're trying to move the discussion to the, to the place that, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants of science. So again, when these things start to move all at the same time, Raul, they start to quite frequently signal that we are going into a phase transition into a different economic quad, with the most dangerous one being deflation, quad four. So if you have, so for example, what would happen that the dollar, well, the dollars start going up, the 10-year yield will start, start to go down. You'll have, that's a similar set, for example, in fractal math, as we would say, but a, a similar set that's quite causal in quad four, if it's non-episodic, it's trending, is an up dollar and down bond yields. That, I'm, I'm boiling one of the things in the big thing down, but that's one of the biggest, uh, biggest, biggest similar sets that matter. I want to go back a bit. When you've got this whole bunch of signals that you say, you, you, you download the model in the morning, how do you know whether there's enough signals to say, 
hey, there's something changing in, in how we should allocate within the quads now. Because obviously the economic data doesn't change very often. So yeah. how do you know when, when the markets are giving you a real signal that there's enough of a signal for you to say, okay, I need to do something about this versus that's interesting, I'll just watch it? Well, most of the time it's like um, what you know the, the model would call uh, Brownian motion. It's nothingness, but there's a bit, and that's the whole point. And Mandelbrot taught us this too. You know, it's about the particular of things. It's not the average of things, and it's not about the feeling of things. It's certainly not about the valuation of things. Valuation is not a catalyst. Um, but again, when when the probabilities all line up together, you act, and and it takes some time to wait and watch on that. What's easier to do is once you're in a new trend, uh, is to just ride it. So, for example, you know, from middle of 2018 until May of this year, the dollar was signaling global deflation uh, alongside global bond yields, just to use that similar set that I just mentioned. So I had a lot of conviction because every bloody day that it would wake up, Raul, it would do the same thing. It would say the same thing for two and a half years. You know, so that's easy. The hard yeah. part is to, is to realize when yeah. that was saying that in the middle of 2018 or in May of 2020, uh, I guess it was more like, you know, two years. Um, but it's, the hard part is, is recognizing, and that's where, where I have my struggle. My daily struggle is not against somebody's talking points uh, or what somebody wrote in the FT. It is against the machine. It's against me, myself, and I. My, my flaws as a human being, my susceptibility to getting sucked into a, to a fake signal or a head fake or an episodic, you know, non-trending signal. And there are a lot of those. I mean, and, and um, you know, th that can kind of drive you a little crazy. So you have to tone yourself. You got you to gotta wake up sober in the morning. You can start with that. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you dealing with economic data nowadays? Because, you know, economic data is kind of a bit odd right now. And so how are you putting that into your model? Considering things are moving very fast, everyone, we're all trying to use real-time economic data as well. How, how are you adapting to the kind of new world in terms of, the economic data when you're building out the quads themselves and the big signals. Uh, it's an important question too. I mean, we're back. We're constantly uh, back testing, whether it be through what we thought were former and interesting AI algos like random forest or whatever we're using. In the background, we're always trying to find like what what could be a better data set. You know, there are a lot of data sets. We, as a research team, we have forty different analysts. We have twenty. Uh, fully loaded with data scientists and software engineers, 20 other uh, guys and gals doing that. So I'm looking at a lot of shit, right? But what you find is that a lot of the sh a lot of a lot of shit means nothing. And what you've, you I've found in the last since 2016, even the Chinese data, the Chinese data, which has got to be the most made up of data, apples to apples, they have the same people making up the same shit. So what you find is that the rate of change of the made up numbers are quite causal. I mean. You know, we got long China on what we would call a quad one. Um, quad one is when you have the rate of change of inflation falling as real growth is accelerating. And being long China has been a, a beautiful position, irrespective of your political opinion of the Chinese or your or your position on China long short. So again, you, there, the data itself, or Germany, for example, which just, and I know you want to get into thoughts on positions and whatnot later, uh, but Germany just started to signal just a raging quad four in Q4 of 2020, which made German equities a bigger short than anything in the US equity space in particular, and made German boons along at like 40 basis points on the 10-year German boon yield, which would drive the valuation expert bananas. So again, um, you know, I actually think the government data has been, if you're doing it, and it's, 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 it's not about the data that everybody has, Rolf. It's about what you see. 
You know, I'm not trying to be Picasso. I'm obviously mucker, not Picasso. But I mean, you do kind of have to get in there and you got to you got to see is is the data confirming or denying your position? And is it rotten data? And it's quite unfre- it's infrequent that we're seeing that. If, if, if anything, I've started to buy countries in the last three three months, like Finland, their equity market that I didn't know that we could nail Finland, but the model nailed it. And I thank, thanks to the Finns for their government data. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, so now you've, you've, you've got the quads, we've talked about that, you've got your economic data, you've got your positions. How do you know which positions to take and, and what not to? Right? How do you filter what is an opportunity versus, you know, there's, you can spit out a lot of trades, but you need to yep. know what the conviction is going to be on a trade or whether you should take the trade or not. How do you go through that filtering process? I, I had a wonderful discussion with um, with Diego Paria uh, uh, at the Hedge Eye Investing Summit that you 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 did such a great job at, and everybody appreciated the time you spent with us. And people, that's what they really care about. And thanks for spending some time on my process because that's really what I'm spending with Diego. And all of a sudden, he's talking my language. He says, "You know what, Keith? You know what? A lot of people make a mistake with when it comes to to running a portfolio away from understanding that the goalie and the defenders matter in winning the game, and it's not just about having scorers. You know, to use Maybe a Bitcoin analogy. People like the idea of having, you know, you know, nine Maradonas on the field. I mean, the thing's going to triple and quintuple. That's great. We have to have that. But what we really need to do, like the way I think about it, my own net worth is and, and preserving and protecting that so that I can compound returns is having a full team of players, a fully allocated, full investing cycle team on the field, and then grossing up the bets where there's an asymmetry in the payout. Okay. Asymmetry in the payout, and Perea said this beautifully, because most of Wall Street, they've been taught to think of the asymmetry in conviction. Like, what is this guy's narrative? What is this guy's story? When I listen to him or her, do I feel like they feel? There's a lot of feel there, right? I feel absolutely nothing. Like, so when I looked at uh, tips yesterday, the most asymmetric you know, thing that I could have done yesterday, which is the most boring thing to a lot of people, is allocate assets to tips. You know, sell things that, that booking gains in certain things like Bitcoin, which was going up, and and reallocate to tips. So it's it's about pruning and planting. That's another way to think about it. Um, when you have when you can go anywhere in your strategy, I actually think saving and making money gets easier. Where I think it, this game gets a lot harder is when you're betting and forced to bet on Diego Maradona having nine of them on the field and they all have to score three goals. That's not how I do it. Never have, never will. And I know it's only for a certain type, but I do think it's for a lot of people who would prefer to not have 30 to 50 to 80 percent drawdowns of their net worth. Yeah. And that's why I'm very interested in what you do. It's, it's more about it's more about when, when the model comes up with a lot of positions, what do you do? Just say everybody, well, here's here's like 20 new positions. Or do you say, OK, we filter it down to 10 where we think they're is more asymmetry or we see the volatile change at a different rate or the volume's confirming it better. How do you filter the trades down to something that you say, listen guys, these are the ones. Yeah, so I, I have a predetermined you know, rules on what my max uh, allocation is by asset class. So 12% would be a currency position is my max, which would include gold because I consider it a currency. 10% would be a fixed income max position. So if I were to take 
were to take a 10% position or a position that I want to go big in in tips, for example, the max would be 10% of that. Uh, equities would be a 6% position and commodities, which I'd put Bitcoin in that bucket or any other asset, uh, which includes wine, uh, I would make that 4%. So when you add all that up, you actually don't need that many positions when you go big on, you know, we're talking about a dozen positions are really my asset allocation. And there are a lot of other things that could become my bigger asset allocation. That's the other thing about, you know, as, as you know, anybody who's run money knows to make money, you have to have something on to understand it, feel it, you know, trade it, uh, risk manage it. For, in my speak, I need to watch that sucker in price, volume, volatility space. And then that's what gives me the go button. And, 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 and guess what? Newsflash. Every time I hit the go button, it doesn't work. But if you get, if you probability weight your decisions and you're right 65, 70, 75% of the time, it's a great way to, to, to manage your own money and or other people's money. So when you're looking at that overall allocation, so you've got this maximum risk allocation, right? Yeah, by position. What are you normally running when you're looking, you know, you're observing the, the recommended portfolio over time. What kind of risk allocation do you normally have? Do you say, listen, we're running at a 30% risk allocation across the board? Or do you say, hey, listen, we're running a 30% allocation in bonds or whatever? How, how do you think about the whole? I think about that through the lens of the quads as well. And we've written extensively on this. Some people are like, well, I need white papers. And I say, well, it's on a piece of white paper. I'm not going back to college to go prove that out. Um, so again, uh, what you find is that in quad four, for example, you have a 60 plus percent al allocation to dollars and in fixed income. Uh, whereas in quad two, you're going to have the opposite of that. You may not have any fixed income or I'll be short fixed income outright. I'll be short gold in quad two as well. So I think about it's it's conditioned uh, it's conditionally uh, affected obviously by the quad and um, that's why again it's a go anywhere strategy where uh, in quad two for example in 2018 I was short gold and then I went long gold in Q4 of 2018 when we got a quad four signal and the quad four signal started with dollars and treasuries you know just thinking about the aggregate of the signal and that's what I did you know so it'll be actually it's it's it'll look a lot a lot. It would look totally different than some rando 60-40 bullshit model is what I'll just call that, um, because that's just not a sensible way to do it, uh, nor is targeting net exposure. or The only thing that I would do is, is target the max gross exposure by asset allocation. And that's also a function, by the way, as a function of volatility. So you know, you know, it, the reason why I say that Bitcoin's a commodity or it's an asset and a commodity and an asset are the same thing is that Bitcoin's volatility, historical volatility, resembles, if you've, uh, I'm sure you've looked at it, um, it, looks, it looks very much like a commodity or in some cases an equity. So that's why I put it in, that, in, in the non-12% bucket as a currency. I don't think it's a currency anyway, but if it had currency attributes from a volatility perspective, I wouldn't care. I just put it there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very dispassionate process in, in terms of scoring uh, the, the realized volatility of an asset over time. And then, so when you're dealing, let's say, with the Brazilian real versus the Swiss franc, Right, two wildly different volatility currencies. Do you volatility weight them, or you don't, or you would equally yes. weight them? How do you think about that? Yep, uh, that's a great. That's a great uh, question and an important point from a risk management perspective. And I should have said it at the outset. Each position is beta adjusted or volatility adjusted. So if I take a short position in the, in the BR, you know, real, to use your example, against the dollar, that's going to be a smaller notional position than shorting euros against the dollar. Yeah, so because euro's got less volatility against the dollar than than the reals do. Good. Okay. So I think we've got a decent idea. I think there's a lot of people. Yeah, people are going to have to take a few notes and and learn some of this stuff. But so now we've done. We've gone through that. Let's talk about where we are now. 
So, you know, I've, I'm even I'm a bit confused because there was a you were in firmly in quad three, which is the explain quad three. Mm-hmm. Well, quad three is where you have economic stagflation. So that's where you have uh, a down dollar. You generally have a central plan to inflate asset prices in that. And in this case, the devalued dollar. Um, so quad three versus quad four, stagflation versus quad four is deflation. And from what I can see, you you were firmly in quad three for long period of time, nailed this kind of whole rally up, did all of that. Then there's been a bit of flipping around here between quad three and quad four. What's what's going on right now? How, yeah, how, how does that work when it's kind of flipping around for you? Well, all that's flipping around are the signals and the data. So it, it is, um, and this is where people who want me to be an elegant mucker uh, are, are wildly disappointed because there's no typical holding period or amount of time and space, as Einstein would explain, where, where your inability to move uh, you know, starts to matter. And that's generally through the lens of volatility. So again, what volatility does is it shortens time and space when it's rising. When volatility starts to fall, it allows everybody to be a long-term investor. So that's what it is. And quad three to quad four, we're talking about, and we're very precise in terms of how this is measured. You basically went from a probability of it being quad three for basically, let's say, since uh, May until August. That was a very, what we'd say, a high probability, 60, 70, 80%, to moving towards, oh, quad four just became a 30% probability. And then it got, in the middle of September, it actually, uh, Raul, got up to a 57% probability of quad four surpassing quad three. So there was a point in time there where I went back to long dollars, long treasuries, and shorting the NASDAQ, which is what you do, uh, for example, in quad four. And then, boom, you know, this past week, it flipped right back to now it's like it's a pretty close race, by the way. It's 49% for quad three and 47% uh, or thereabouts for quad four. So here's an interesting question for you. When you get a big transition shift, do you often find there's volatility between the quads? You know, the vol of vol yep. of your own signals picks up. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing there's some informational value in the fact that you're flipping around. Oh, yeah. That there's often a change of regime. Oh yeah, I mean they're big time, and and typical typically the, the the government wants to infuse their their thoughts on it, and that is indeed perpetuating the volatility. So think of something simple like a stimulus bill, uh, or a not stimulus bill, or a stimulus bill that doesn't happen on the timeline that you're positioned for. Therefore, you got a position for the next timeline. So again, you'll see that in implied vol space, and that's where thirty day implied versus realized starts to flip around because it's not my model that's flipping around; it's people that are flipping around. Okay, it's it's people, it's that's human right, yeah. beings that are buying and selling options. The market's clearly scrambling to understand, okay, what is the narrative happening right now? What does this all mean? Which is, as you say, the market doesn't make its mind up, and so you're seeing the model change around. Right, and some people are super uncomfortable with me doing that, and I love it, because embracing uncertainty, like I'm, like, I'm happy to be a mucker and a trader because you have to be a little less intelligent, a little more numb to having the answer to all of it all the time. You have to be able to say, I don't fucking know. And you know what? The market doesn't either. That's why I don't know. When the market knows on my metrics, price, volume, volatility, and knows what quad it is, I can make money on the long side. Like, it's so easy. It's so easy. When it gets hard, there are a lot of things that the market's trying to discount on different durations. And it's not just hard for you. It's hard for the whole market. So I I like periods like that because I love trading vol in particular. Um, and I have a process for it. I mean, imagine the alternative, Ralph. You're sitting there without all this information that I have, and you're hostage to your feelings. I would get crushed in that environment. 
Like if all I did was trade on valuation, my feelings and what political party I thought should win or what stimulus should work or not, like these are pretty dangerous thoughts, at least for me. I mean, that would kill me. I, I would lose so much money trying to go with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. So, okay, so we've got this volatility in this transition shift. So it's not clear, kind of makes sense with what's going on. The markets are, yep. you know, one way or the other. Bond yields go to the top of the range, they go to the bottom of the range, they go back to the top of the range. They're clearly struggling to figure out inflation, deflation. Okay, that makes sense. What are the strongest signals you're seeing? Amongst a lot of this noise in the quads, you're obviously seeing yeah. some strong signals. We talked about the IBEX earlier in Spain that you've been short for a while because you've had a consistent quad four signal. Talk us through some of those consistent signals you've got. Yeah, the, the most consistent signal for going on three years in the case of shorting the, the EBEX or Spanish equities uh, is the, the a the ter- deterioration of uh, of the of the quad in Germany and Spain and the market signal that supports that. So in other words, that's why German boon yields went to like minus sixty six basis points last week. That's a super strong signal. Even CNBC started talking about it, and that was the day to sell some boons. Uh, but again, because the boons get to the top end of the range or the yields at the low end of the range, you know, th- th- that's a very easy one. To have been short anything European equity on the southern side of Europe has been fantastic. What's also manifested as quite a strong signal, like I said, is the north of Europe, like we're along Norway and Finland. And again, this isn't a theme. It just it's just what the signal, I can, and that's t- very typical of what I do. I'll tell you a story about what's happening after it's happening. I don't tell something to happen, and therefore, you know, I am. Like, that's not how we do it. So that's a big signal on the European side. In the U.S., I think the, the most contrarian signal uh, that continues to manifest is a, is a, a real uh, potential cycle. I mean, a full investing cycle bottom in commodities. Like, I think that that's a big one, um, and that's one that I continue to broaden my bets in. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin has been one of my bets, and I have traded around it. Don't tell anyone. Uh, but again, I trade around cattle. I trade around a lot of different things. Corn is making a new high. All of ag looks fantastic to the upside. And that's despite you know the dollar having this kind of, maybe I'll go back to deflation. But really, what it's saying is that by the time we get to 2020, uh, 2021, our, cle- our cleanest projection is that we're going to be USA quad two. And the difference between quad two and quad three is that quad two has more inflation faster and you actually have real growth. That wouldn't be hard to envision because next year in Q2, you're comparing against a pandemic. So in shit. other words, if you're looking at inflation, it, no shit you're going to have inflation. The comparison is a negative oil price last year. So the question really, I think the market's struggling with um, in terms of having you know, clean direction is A, on how high is inflation going to go if, if you have MMT in the U.S., and they actually do commit to burning the dollar from a very high level. As you know, the dollar is at, you know, really, a, it's at a full quad cycle high. That's what it is. So that one to me looks like the one that I'm most likely going to press and stay with um, is, is go, you know, go, back, go back to shorting dollars and buying commodities or shorting. You realize China looks fantastic too on the long side or EM is starting to broaden, which is kind of the same thing. Um, you know, to get the dollar right, you get a lot of things right, including EM and commodities. Yeah, they're all the tra- same trade. If dollar weakens and EM goes up, you know, it's as simple as that. And right. as you, as you yeah. pointed out earlier, generally the most hated EM goes up the most, which is China. You know, I was looking at the MSCI China chart. I'm like, fuck, that looks amazing. And I'm like, I have no idea what the narrative <laughs> is, but, but that looks really good right now. Yeah, yeah the China consumer, which we like... Um, China Consumers, CHIQ is the ETF that we prefer there. We also like, you know, KWeb, which is China Internet, KBA, which is EA shares. That's the more boring of the three, but they all work. 
and they're working for the right reasons. You've had a lot of domestic consumption occur. And I do think that the you know, countries moving, this is more thematic. Again, I tell myself the story after it happens, uh, is that you know, countries are looking inward. Therefore, domestic growth, uh, consumption growth in China has actually been quite strong. I mean, uh, retail sales just went from zero to plus 3.3%. Industrial production growth's up seven. Yeah, what if they're made up? You know what the U.S. number is on industrial production? Down seven. You know, so it's, uh, it's also a relatively, uh, I like it when a growth story is relative and absolute. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, talk to me about because there's a lot of ETFs that you look at in your universe. Some of these are deeply illiquid. How do you deal with liquidity within this? Because, you know, you've got different clients. You've got some of them are institutional, some of them are retail. How do you think about liquidity? No, nope. you don't look at it. I mean, I, I know that, you know, the ostensible, what's been kind of a humbling experience here is that, for example, like the Tacrium corn ETF, the ticker's corn or SOYB, same manufacturer of, of ETFs. Like the CEO like pings me because I hit a real-time alert buy signal on it for the first time and the volume quintupled or whatever. And he's like, well, who are you? And what are you, what, what, can we talk? <laughs> it's like, you don't want to talk to me. There's going to be a day that I short your ETF, buddy. Uh, so at the end of the day, um, and that's humbling because, you know, as we call them, Hedgeye Nation, you know, acts uh, in concert when they see something big. Like they've, they haven't seen me go bullish on commodities forever. You know, so something like that, it wasn't you know, like you don't uh, in the very short term, like maybe in the first one or two hours, you might have a bit of a, a disconnect versus the underlying. But the price of, of that ETF and the price of corn, they're they're not mirror, but they're pretty damn they're close enough for me. Let's put it that way. So going back to these quads now, what do you think? And again, the wrong question to ask you, but what do you think is going to happen looking at the data that you've got? Are we going to stay in quad three? Are we going to quad four? Are we in the hands in the air? I don't fucking know. Let's see what happens phase. What's your best guess? And again, I know you don't like guessing, but I'm just, but you know the nuances of your own models. You kind of know the feel of how, you know, how that usually plays out. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's not unlike watching the behavior of your children. I mean, Yes, we'd like to hodl our children for the long term, but um, uh, in the very immediate term, we can have some big behavioral problems with these children. And we, over the intermediate term, we're, we're tasked with smoothing them out and going with the, you know, the highest probability uh, decisions that we can make to help them get to where we'd love to hodl them for the long term. So again, I'm, I'm into this whole hodling uh, lingo because I love, I love, I, I, uh, there are certain things I do love and uh, they certainly are, are not assets um, that I trade. But if you think about it that way, you know, don't forget that I have, um, maybe I should have said this at the outset as well. We have all of our subscribers, you know, for a long time now have been getting what we call quad map. So the quad map shows you, you know, 50 countries and what the next four probable quarters or four quads by quarter, economic quadrant is what a quad means by quarter. So that's the story I always go with, Raul. That's the story I tell myself. So when I look at China today or Taiwan, which is an even more interesting example. The next four quads for Taiwan are quad two, 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 two. Okay, I know what that means. That's by EWT or by Taiwan. Um, yeah, so when I look ahead at the U.S. model, I think we're going through the last of the of the slowing, if you will, because this is a recession on a year-over-year basis. 
the debate is between deflationary recession or a stagflating one. Stagflating one is much better for gold, for example, than a deflating one. But it, the probability is high and rising that we're going to be in quad two. And maybe we're going to be there for uh, three to six months. Uh, I don't know. That's the part that I don't know. And again, God willing, every day, I'm going to look at the signals, anything in the data that changes the quads. And when would you think that transition would mo be most probable to occur into quad two? Is that Q1 or Q2 or earlier? Uh, could be. Well, well, in terms of like the, the way that a market, the way that a practitioner would price it or me, when I'd buy it, when, when would I go from buying, I'm currently long, I went from being long quad four basically for a six week period. And then day to day, I was even flipping around, which again, drives people crazy, but I love it. Um, is, is going like you, you could have, you could envision a scenario, let, let's say Trump wins and the market does whatever it does and it goes to the level that freaks people out or not. You know, that might be the moment to put on the quad two portfolio in November. It could be sometime in December when you know, people are tax loss selling or tax you know, booking, you know, taking, taking their tax gains because they don't want to pay X rates. I don't know what that date's going to be. That's why typically when I set up for the next quad roll, I always say this, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do like until like literally T minus one to three days. It may not happen. So but I'll make a big as well. Yeah, I know what I'm looking for. I know what the, I know, I know what I'm looking for. But it's just like hunting or fishing. You know, you don't just get to pick your prize. You have to wait on it. And, you know, this whole concept that you have to, that you can just like, you know, roll into it and stay with it. I just don't do it that way because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a selfish bastard. I want to get that price. <laughs> and um, the market setup right now is really interesting from a U.S. equity perspective because there's so much bubbliness to it all. And you have a very high regime of volatility, like NASDAQ volatility is at 35 today, uh, which is basically, you know, untenable if it were to stay there. A bull has never made money with equity vol staying with the three in front of it or in the 30s. Let's just be clear on that. Um, but it could also mean that you know the, the shape of the VIX curve or the shape of, of the VXN NASDAQ volatility curve is basically got all the fear you're going to ever want into it ahead of the election. So there's two different ways to look at everything. And I just wait and watch. I just say, okay, play yourself out. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But when you do it, I'm going to, going back to my children, if you do that, I'm going to discipline you. If you do that, then I'm going to compliment you. <laughs> so looking across this slightly confusing world that you've described to us, what are your strongest convictions? Clearly, short Europe seems to be still pretty strong and sounds like long developed Asia seems pretty strong in equity terms. Yeah, I and I like those because I'm long short too, don't forget. So, you know, having them against each other has been great. Uh, I think that the, the, the hardest one to solve for is going to be the U.S. equity market uh, and how to time the components. Because if it is quad two, you know what you buy? You buy my shorts. You buy financials and you buy energy right. stocks. That's right. So that's, that's the one when you, when you think about the asymmetry of payouts. The worst two sectors in quad four are the energy stocks and the financial stocks. <laughs> so they've been quad four, you know, so that and even buying oil for, for, for that matter. Um, you know, those are the things that I, if I'm going to go big on something new, those are the two that I could have a lot of conviction in, but I have more conviction in waiting right now. Um, riding commodities broadly, as I said, is an easier one because we already have a lot of things, which I do think are linked probably to some, whatever you want to call it, green deal and stimulus, like trillions at a time, the electrification of even the hair that you and I have left. We're going to electrify everything. So we're going to need natural gas, copper. I believe in that theme because the market signal does. And that's one that I'm, that I'm in 
uh, fairly significantly in terms of exposure right now. So how do you deal with a market that's as bifurcated as this? So you've got banks, oil, a bunch of stuff that is screaming quad four, right, in your terms. And then you've got a bunch of stuff that's not at all, like commodities. So when you've got the market that's got a complete psychosis about it, how the hell do you make a decision? Or do you just play them as like, okay, fine, you've got a split personality and we just trade the split personality? That, that's pretty much it. Like I, I don't ask questions in the morning when I buy more natural gas when it's at the loan of the range and why I don't buy oil when, you know, technically I should be, or from a quad perspective, I should be long both and T minus a month or two. Um, I just don't care. I, I, that's why I really don't care. I mean, I'm more thinking of the signals that it gives for the quads itself. So yeah. your macro framework, is when you've got this split stuff, it's fine when it's the Ibex and the DAX are all falling and buns are falling, right? It's pretty fucking obvious yep, what's that's going easy. on. Yeah. But when you've got <laughs> that's a market easy. that's doing two different things at the yeah. same time and yeah. screaming two narratives, those two narratives yeah. are inputs into your model to give you quads. Right. Is that one of the reasons it keeps flipping around at the moment, maybe? Well, yeah, well, because we were flipping between quad three and quad four and financials are shorts, are shorts in both. Uh, so to use, the, that's a good example of one that you'd be short financials in both quad three and quad four. You'd be long utilities in both quad three and quad four. So you, there are certain um, sector styles that work in both quads. And I think that that message has been very clear. No matter what you think it is, Mr. Market, if it's quad three or quad four, which are two very different things, um, we're going to buy utilities and we're going to buy REITs and we're going to short financials. And that, that's been clear. The big move that I'm talking about is when it's neither of those two quads and it's quad two. That's where you short utilities, short REITs, short treasuries, and buy financials and buy energy stocks. And that's the one that, that's confusing in terms of how to time it, but not, not because of the quads. You know, the, the, we're not just going to go to quad two because a certain long-only manager needs to rotate. Um, you know, they, they're getting rotated this year on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it's fascinating. And we'll see, we'll see how it plays out to see where... Where we end up, I'm I'm really interested in, in the self and the volatility of the volatility of your quads, and I kind of have a feeling there's some informational value within that, where the market seems to be fighting with itself to decide, okay, what yep. is this? What is the narrative that it wants to trade? Um, I don't know how long that this kind of volatility of this plays out for. My guess it's election related, and we'll we'll see after that. I mean, I mean, what happens if we don't get results, or what happens if we get split? Senate. I mean, nobody's <laughs> thinking that anymore. Everyone's like, oh, well, okay, it's probably a Democrat victory. And there's a bunch of other people saying, well, I'm sure Trump will nail it. Nobody's really, everyone, that narrative of, well, I'm saying we don't get anything for three months. That'll be fun for the market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many asymmetric risks. And again, like for me, it's, I don't have to work. I, I don't feel like I, don't, I really sleep fine. I mean, it's, it's like when those payouts appear, the asymmetry of the payout appears. Like I'm, I'm comfortable because I have a map, you know, not only in terms of what, and I think that that's a key thing here too, Raul, is that you know, some people say, well, the guy's cocky or confident or both. I mean, I'm just aware. Like, I don't think you can wake up in the morning. I wouldn't play this game that way. Being unaware of what, literally what economic quadrant, any country you're trading or any commodity exposure you have, any bond you're trading sovereign bond being uh, the primary ones that I've been talking about in this conversation. But I wouldn't make it, I wouldn't, you shouldn't pay me a thing to say anything about anything until I know everything looking backwards. Because the, the best leading indicator for the future is what happened in rate of change terms in the past. 
And that's what gives me conviction like to act when I act because I have a map that's based on the time series of what already happened. Brilliant. Keith, thank you so much for your time. I think it was just really good and interesting to dig into how you see things because, you know, you spend half your time on Twitter trying to explain why you do things to people because they don't understand. And I just think it's good for people to understand how you do things because you do stuff very differently. Um, I think it's a unique approach and it's a systematic approach, which I think is useful and very appealing to a lot of people. Um, And so, you know, keep up the good work with what you're doing and let's see how this all plays out as ever. And we can all talk, as we said, we can all talk about the future. The future isn't anything until it's happened and we'll find out what happens. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Not everybody asks all the questions you did. And I think that's the first part of understanding somebody's process is trying to understand. So thanks. I I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to do that. All right, Keith. Take care. Speak to you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.